God bless us and the Virgin protect us. Once again, I want to explicitly acknowledge my debt and gratitude to Our Lady of Fatima. She has to get the credit for anything good, true, or beautiful in any of these conferences, and uh, all the faults are mine. Ave Maria Prisima, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yesterday, we considered the miracle of the Son. We saw that because the things of God are so far beyond our words and our ability to comprehend the realities of the spiritual world, heaven typically speaks to us in symbols in such a way that all those who have the light of faith can understand. We saw that a Christian symbol is meant to bring a whole host of various related ideas up. That in other words, one symbol can and is meant to stand for and bring to mind a whole series of related spiritual concepts. We saw that both Christian symbolism, as well as our Lord's parables, hide truths which they express from those who are not open to the truth and make them understandable to those who are open to the truth. We saw that the very fact that our Lord taught in parables was itself a prophetic sign of upcoming judgment. We saw he was making the point that first century Judea was in the same wretched condition as Israel had been in the days of the prophet Isaiah, and as a consequence was facing the same outcome, that its cities were to be laid waste and its people slaughtered and scattered. We saw that our Lord explained his parables to those close to him, and that he intended their veiled meaning to be understood by anyone truly seeking the truths to be found in them. But since the great majority were not interested in those truths, they were left hardened, unresponsive, and under his judgment. We saw that the situation in Fatima was very similar, that the very fact that Our Lady of Fatima taught in symbols is analogous to the reason our Lord taught in parables, and that although the three little children were given the secrets of the Immaculate Heart, her symbolic messages are already a prophetic sign of upcoming judgment. We saw that like her son, Our Lady intended their veiled meaning to be understood by anyone seeking the truths to be found in them, but for the most part, the hearts of the people were not, and still are not, open to her message. We saw that when Sister Lucia had been struggling to write the third secret, Our Lady appeared and told her, be at peace and write what they order you, but not what has been given to you to understand its meaning. We saw, in other words, that the very format of the third secret as it's been revealed to us, a symbolic vision without the accompanying explanation, that in itself is already a sign of judgment. It's a sign of the state of men's hearts. We saw that on October 13, 1917, at least 70,000 witnesses, many of them not believers, were standing in the pouring rain in a muddy sheep pasture in Fatima when suddenly the clouds parted the sky cleared, then the sun shot out the colors of the rainbow, it whirled and spun and danced three times, and then broke free and hurled toward earth. That the people were convinced they were about to be burnt alive, fell to their knees in the mud and the water, confessing their sins and crying out for mercy, and then the sun retreated, leaving everyone in dry clothes on dry ground. We saw this as literally a miracle of biblical proportions, that in the entire history of the world, the only other miracles that can be compared to this at all are all found in the Holy Bible. And out of those, this is the only one that was publicly announced beforehand as to the date 
time, and place. We saw that according to St. Vincent Ferrer, heaven often puts a warning in the sky when a great affliction is about to come on the world. So people may either advert the punishment through prayers and penance, or may prepare themselves to suffer the affliction. We saw that among other things, because heaven rules the earth, the sun, moon, and the stars symbolize rulers here on earth. And that these heavenly bodies are obscured when the leaders of the church or the world depart from justice and holiness and turn to depravity and wickedness. We saw that on the one hand, the rainbow is a visible reminder that as long as we're faithful and obedient, like Noah and his family, then even if the whole world be swallowed up by a flood, God is merciful and he'll take care of us. We saw that on the other hand, the rainbow is a reminder that in the days of Noah, we broke the covenant and called down judgment upon ourselves. And now it's been hung up in the sky as a sign that God won't destroy the world again with water. We saw it's also a reminder that if man returns to the day of Noah, if man breaks that union with God, is long, longer being fruitful and multiplying, if man ignores the warning of the rainbow by mocking God with perverse marriages, then fire will fall from the sky and will destroy the world. We saw that in regards to the dancing of the sun, that God alters the fixed patterns of sun, moon, and stars to indicate judgment on those who have wrongly altered his moral patterns, especially through idolatry, and also that it's a sign of the end of the world. We saw that the falling of the sun is a sign of judgment. And it's meant to remind us of the fire from the sky that totally destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for their sins of perversity, and at the same time, it's also meant to remind us of the fire from the sky that both scripture and tradition tell us will destroy the world before our Lord comes to judge the living and the dead. We saw that the parting of the clouds and the dry land is meant to remind us of the parting of the Red Sea and the consequent failure of Israel to abandon the idols of Egypt. That it's a symbolic warning that viewing marvels and miracles is not enough. We must have a true conversion of heart cleave to the living God, and totally reject the false idols of this world. We saw that the miracle of the sun is a very sobering, symbolic warning that God's judgment is looming, that the end of the world is at hand. We saw that during the miracle, the children saw the Holy Family, St. Joseph together with the child Jesus, who blessed the world three times with Our Lady of Rosary dressed in blue and white. Then that faded and our Lord appeared cloaked in red as the divine redeemer with our lady of sorrows cloaked in purple. Then that faded and our lady of Mount Carmel appeared holding the child Jesus. We saw that heaven never acts without a purpose. And so a miracle like this, a miracle of unprecedented and biblical proportions points towards a corresponding message of unprecedented and biblical importance. The apocalyptic overtones of the miracle itself point towards apocalyptic overtones in the message. We saw that in regards to the message, St. John Paul II said, quote, the appeal made by Mary, our mother, at Fatima is such that the whole church feels obligated to respond to the requests of Our Lady. The message imposes an obligation on the church. And finally, we saw that in her last public inter interview, Sister Lucia said, quote, Father, the Most Holy Virgin is very sad because no one has paid any attention to her message, neither the good nor the bad. The good continue on their way, but without giving any importance to her message. The bad, not seeing the punishment of God actually falling upon them, continue their life of sin without even caring about the message. 
But believe me, Father, God will chastise the world, and this will be in a terrible manner. Close quote. Let's turn to the message. Our Lady's message in July is indeed the heart of the Fatima message. July 13, 1917. I re read from Sister Lucia's memoirs. A few moments after arriving in the COVID area near the home oak, where a large number of people were praying the rosary, we saw the flash of light once more, and a moment later, Our Lady appeared on the home oak. So, parenthetic, we will insert uh, Sister Lucia's description of Our Lady from the May apparition, so we get some idea what they're seeing. There before us in a small home oak, we beheld a lady all dressed in white. She was more brilliant than the sun and radiated light more clear and intense than a crystal glass filled with sparkling water when the rays of the burning sun shine through it. We were so close, just a few feet from her, that we were bathed in the light which surrounded her, or rather, which radiated from her. We continue with July. What does your grace want of me? I asked. I want you to come here on the 13th of next month to continue to pray the rosary every day in honor of Our Lady of the Rosary in order to attain peace for the world and the end of the war because only she can help you. I would like you to ask, I'd like to ask you to tell us who you are and to work a miracle so that everybody will believe you are appearing to us. Continue to come here every month. In October, I will tell you who I am and what I want and I will perform a miracle for all to see and believe. I then made some requests, but cannot recall now just what they were. What I do remember is that Our Lady said it was necessary for such people to pray the rosary in order to obtain these graces through the year. And she continued, sacrifice yourself for sinners and say many times, especially when you make some sacrifice, O Jesus, it is for love of you, for the conversion of sinners and the reparation for the sins committed against the Immaculate Heart of Mary. As Our Lady spoke these last words, she opened her hands once more, as she had done during the two previous months. The rays of light seemed to penetrate the earth, and we saw, as it were, a sea of fire. Plunged in this fire were demons and souls in human form, like transparent burning embers, all blackened or burnished bronze, floating about in the conflagration, now raised in the air by the flames that issued from within themselves, together with great clouds of smoke, now falling back on every side like sparks in huge fires without weight or equilibrium, amid shrieks and groans of pain and despair, which horrified us and made us tremble with fear. It must have been this sight which caused me to cry out as people say they heard me. The demons could be distinguished by their terrifying and repellent likeness to frightful and unknown animals, black and transparent like burning coals. Terrified, and as if to plead for succor, we looked up at Our Lady who said to us, so kindly and so sadly, you have seen hell where the souls of poor sinners go. To save them, God wishes to establish in the world devotion to my immaculate heart. If what I say to you is done, many souls will be saved and there will be peace. The war is going to end, but if people do not cease offending God, a worse one will break out during the pontificate of Pius XI. When you see a night illumined by an unknown light, know that this is the great sign given you by God that he is about to punish the world for its crimes by means of war, famine, and persecutions of the Church and of the Holy Father. 
To prevent this, I shall come to ask for the consecration of Russia to my Immaculate Heart and the communion of reparation on the first Saturdays. If my requests are heeded, Russia will be converted and there will be peace. If not, she will spread her errors throughout the world, causing wars and persecutions of the church. The good will be martyred, the Holy Father will have much to suffer, various nations will be annihilated. In the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph. The Holy Father will consecrate Russia to me and she will be converted and a period of peace will be granted to the world. In Portugal, the dogma of the faith will always be preserved, etc. Sister Lucia wrote, etc. Back to Our Lady. Do not tell this to anybody. Francisco, yes, you may tell him. Now, Lucia is the only one of the three children who spoke to Our Lady during the apparitions. Uh, St. Jacinta could see and hear Our Lady, but never spoke to her during these apparitions. And as we pointed out yesterday, St. Francisco could see the Blessed Virgin and the visions perfectly, but he couldn't hear her words. We continue. When you pray the rosary, say after each mystery, O my Jesus, forgive us, save us from the fire of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those who are most in need. After this, there was a moment of silence, and then I asked, Is there anything more you want of me? No, I do not want anything more of you today. Then as before, Our Lady began to ascend toward the east until she finally disappeared in the immense distance of the firmament. Close quote, Sister Lucia. This is the heart of the message of Fatima. The previous apparitions were preparing for it, and the miracles associated with the following three apparitions, most notably, of course, the miracle of the sun, were confirmations of this message. There are three parts to the message. They're all interlinked and interdependent. They treat of individuals, nations, and the church. Today we'll consider the first part, the vision of hell, which pertains to the salvation of individuals. Hell. The first thing, the very first thing Our Lady shows the children, little children, is this terrifying vision of hell. All the warnings about famines, wars, persecutions, and annihilation of nations, as frightening as they are, pale in significance to this striking reminder of eternal damnation. Our Lady focuses our attention on the one thing that we should all be focused on, which is our eternity. She's come to remind us of one of the most important truths of our holy Catholic faith, a truth which is denied, ignored, or laughed at in our apostate age. Laughed at and ignored, even by priests. Consider this line from a letter Sister Lucia wrote to young seminarian. I quote, Do not be surprised that I speak to you so much about hell. This is one truth that is necessary to recall often in these times because we forget that souls are falling into hell in droves. Hell is one truth it's necessary to recall often in these times because we forget that souls are falling into hell in droves. Or consider this warning from the Virgin of Revelation. Hell exists. It is a place of condemnation. Do not deny the evidence. 
On the other hand, how many times have we heard some so-called sophisticated person just dismiss the traditional description of hell? They just sort of wave it off with a condescending smile. Suggests that no educated person can actually believe there's some fiery underground prison full of damned souls and demons. That these sort of ideas are just medieval or childish fantasies for simple people. How many times have we heard these same kind of people? People like the immensely popular best-selling author and preacher, Bishop Robert Barron, for example, suggest that hell's at best some sort of nondescript, featureless space somewhere, which we don't really know a lot about, but we can be sure that it's virtually empty, if it even exists at all, that the church has never, ever taught that anyone actually goes to hell. I'd bet good money I'm not the only one here that's heard these kind of claims. Now just ask yourself, does the vision that Our Lady showed the children sound anything even remotely like some empty, nondescript, featureless space somewhere? Or does it sound exactly like the terrifying descriptions of the inferno that we find in scripture and tradition? Let's take a quick look at scripture and tradition. Scripture. We'll just take a few examples from both the Old and New Testaments. Isaiah 33, 14. The sinners in Sion are afraid. Trembling hath seized upon the hypocrites. Which of you can dwell with devouring fire? Which of you shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Ecclesiasticus 7:19. The vengeance, on the, flesh, the vengeance on the flesh of the ungodly is fire and worms. Apocalypse 2015. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the pool of fire. Apocalypse 21.8. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, as for murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their lot shall be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Or Mark chapter 9, verses 46 to 48, where we find the explicit words of our divine Savior himself. It is better for thee, with one eye, to enter into the kingdom of God, than having two eyes to be cast into the hell of fire, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not extinguished. For everyone shall be salted with fire. We've taken a glance at the inspired internet word of God. Now let's quickly consider tradition. Treating of hell, the Catechism of the Council of Trent speaks of, quote, that most loathsome and dark prison, in which the souls of the damned are tormented with the unclean spirits in eternal and inextinguishable fire. This place is called Gehenna, the bottomless pit, and it's hell strictly so-called, close quote. Hell exists, it's terrifying, and it's not some empty, nondescript, featureless space somewhere. Are there really demons in hell? The inspired inner word of God is explicit on this point. Our Lord, speaking of Judgment Day, says, quote, Then he shall say to them also that shall be on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. Close quote, God the Son. 
What about damned souls? There are certain modern theologians, men like Hans Urs von Balthasar and Bishop Robert Barron, who have dared to suggest that besides the demons, no one is hell, in hell, that we can actually dare to hope that all men are saved. But this idea that all men are saved is itself a doctrine of the devil. In August 1458, Pope Pius II condemned the statement, and I quote, this is condemned, all Christians are to be saved. This is condemned. This is condemned, which means the contrary must be true. If all Christians are to be saved is false, then some Christians are not saved. That is to say, some Christians are damned, must be true. We'll just cite one scripture as a proof text. Luke 13, verses 23 and 24, quote, And a certain man said to him, Lord, are they few that are saved? A certain man said to him, Lord, are they few that are saved? Are they few that are saved? But he said to them, Strive to enter by the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, shall seek to enter and shall not be able. Christ our Lord was asked if there were few that were saved. And the Lord answered, Jesus Christ answered, the second person of the most blessed Trinity, God the Son answered, strive to enter by the narrow gate, for many shall seek to enter and shall not be able. Many shall seek to enter and shall not be able. Many shall not be able to enter means that many will not be saved. We have God's word on it. So there are definitely damned souls in hell. Many damned souls, just as the children saw in the vision. Now this really shouldn't be any surprise. We could say of our times that the great doctor of the church, St. John Chrysostom, said of his, quote, most Christians are walking on the road to hell throughout their life. Why should anyone be surprised that the greater number goes to hell? To arrive at a destination, we have to take the road that leads there. To arrive at a destination, we have to take the road that leads there. But don't think for a second this only pertains to the faithful. Speaking of priests, St. John of Avila, another doctor of the church, states, quote, so many and so great are the obligations of a pastor that he who fulfills only a third of them will be estimated by men to be a saint. But if he only contents himself with that, he will not be able to escape Gehenna. St. John Chrysostom also commented, I do not speak rashly. I do not think many priests are saved, but that those who perish are far more numerous. The Virgin of Revelation has very grave warnings for priests. You prepare souls for perdition and not for salvation because you do not propagate the truth, but false, heretical, and idolatrous doctrines denying the true faith while defending false beliefs that lead to perdition. My priest's sons believe that there is only one life, one doctrine, one salvation. Believe in Christ. If you do not believe, and through your own fault others do not believe, 
you will go for all eternity to that hell that exists and is real. So not only are there damned souls in hell, many damned souls, we even know the names of some of the people in hell. If you open your Bibles to the book of Numbers, chapter 16, you can read about the schism of Kor, Dathan, and Abiron. Now these are priests that led a rebellion against Moses during the Exodus. And the Bible tells us that, quote, the earth broke asunder under their feet and devoured them with their tents and all their substance. And they went down alive into hell, the ground closing upon them, and they perished from among the people, close quote. The earth broke asunder under their feet, and they went down alive into hell. Kor, Dathan, and Abiran went down alive into hell. Now wait a minute, Father. Are you sure when it says they fell alive into hell that the Bible is speaking of Gehenna, where the devils are? Yes, we are sure of that. Commenting on this passage, three doctors of the church, among others, St. Jerome, the Venerable Bede, and St. Robert Bellamine, all teach explicitly that Kor, Dathan, and Abiran fell into the place of the damned. And the common teaching of Scripture and the Fathers is that Judas is in hell. So we know the names of some of the people in hell. And note well that one is an apostle and the other three are priests of the Old Covenant. So there are definitely damned souls in hell, many damned souls, and we definitely know the names of some of the people in hell. Anyone that claims otherwise has opposed himself to scripture, tradition, and the authentic teaching of the popes. We continue. What about the pains, the fire, the torments? The principal pain of hell is the pain of loss, the pain of having lost God. St. Thomas says that since this is the loss of an infinite good, that is to say, loss of the Lord our God, since this is the loss of an infinite good, the pain in the damned is, in a certain sense, infinite. St. Anthony Mary Claret points out that, quote, when a soul enters hell, God sheds over it so vivid a light that it can know to the limits of its capacity the greatness of his infinite and divine essence. Because this knowledge is very clear in the damned soul, it presents very vividly to it the immense happiness and blessedness which it could have enjoyed in God. From this, a bitterness comes which is inconceivable, inasmuch as at every moment it is driven towards God with a burning desire and also realizes at each instant that it is cast off by the Lord. So the grief of a soul in hell is boundless due to its loss of God. Close quotes. So the damned are folded in on themselves, so to speak. They're filled with anguish, hatred, pain, rage, and despair, unending despair. There's no relief ever, and there's no hope. No hope, ever, ever. The damned are tormented by the worm that dieth not. That's the realization of how easily they could have been saved. They're tormented in their memory by the thought of the time that was given to them in this life, that they might use it to save their souls, and yet they spend it procuring their own damnation. They're tormented by remembering all the graces they received and wasted by the fact that that loss is irreversible forever. Forever. They will never have anything they desire. will be tortured forever. They will never have any peace ever. There's no relief ever and no hope ever. The damned will also suffer the pain of sense. The greatest pain of sense is the pain inflicted by the fires of hell. The fire of hell is dark. 
St. Thomas teaches it will only give enough light to increase the torments of the damned. So damned will see the horrible deformities of the other damned souls and the terrible forms of the demons through the burning smoke and dark flames. St. Vincent Ferrer says our fire is cold compared to hellfire. St. Teresa of Avila says the difference between painted fire and our fire is much less than the dis dis distance between our fire and hellfire. Hellfire tortures the sense of touch. The damned are totally immersed in fire. Fire below, fire above, fire to the sides, just as the children saw. They're breathing fire. Fire that penetrates everywhere and burns without consuming. And then after Judgment Day, when the damned get their bodies back, those parts of the bodies that were specially used in sin are burnt all the more. In blasphemers, the tongue will burn more, in thieves, the hands, and so forth. Fire will be spewing out of their mouths, the ears, the eyes, and bodies of the damned. They'll be totally steeped in hellfire and wishing to be annihilated, but still never consumed. There's no relief ever and no hope ever. After Judgment Day, the damned also will suffer the pain of immobility. However they land in hell on the last day, they remain in that position without moving for all eternity. There's no relief ever and no hope. They'll be tortured by unbearable hunger for all eternity and unquenchable thirst that not even an ocean of water could relieve, but they'll never get a single drop. Their hearing will be tormented by the incessant shrieking, howling, cursing, blaspheming, desperate wailing of the damned. The damned soul wails and shrieks because he's lost God, and he's lost him for all eternity. He can never love God. He hates him, and he'll hate him forever, even though he realizes God is infinitely good and worthy of infinite love. St. Alphonsus states that the damned soul will hate and curse God and all his gifts of nature and grace. He will curse being created, curse his partners in sin, curse being redeemed. If he had received the sacraments, he will curse being baptized, curse being confirmed, curse having confessed his sins, cursed having received Holy Communion. He will hate the angels and saints, especially his guardian angel and the patron saints, and above all, Our Lady. But he will principally hate and curse the most blessed Trinity, and most especially the second person who became man and died for him. He will curse our Lord's wounds, his precious blood, his pain, and his death. Now, some fools joke about going to hell because that's where all their friends are going to be. No one has any friends in hell. St. Thomas teaches that the greater the number of the damned in hell, the greater the misery of each one. No one has any friends in hell. The damned are all folded in on themselves, so to speak, and filled with anguish, hatred, pain, rage, and unending despair. But the most terrifying aspect of hell is eternity eternity. Imagine walking to the Rocky Mountains, taking one teaspoon of soil and rock, and walking all the way to the Atlantic Ocean, and toss it in, back and forth, back and forth, Rockies to the Atlantic, one teaspoon of soil and rock at a time. By the time you'd leveled the entire Rocky Mountains to the ground, tossed all the rock and debris into the Atlantic Ocean, one teaspoon at a time, eternity wouldn't be half over. It wouldn't be a hundredth over. It wouldn't be a thousandth over. It wouldn't even got started. Eternity is a terror above all terrors. Sister Lucia, what made the biggest impression on Jacinta was the idea of eternity. Even in the middle of a game, she would suddenly stop and ask, but listen, 
Doesn't hell end after many, many years then? Or again, those people burning in hell, don't they ever die? Don't they turn into ashes? Eternity is the terror above terrors. In hell there's an entrance, but there is no exit. Consider these excerpts from Sister Lucia's writings. Certain people, even pious people, did not like to speak of hell to the children, so not as to frighten them. But God did not hesitate to show it to the three children, one of whom was only six, and he knew quite well that she would be horrified to the point of being consumed with fright, I would go so far as to say. One thing that sanctified these children was to see the vision of hell. The vision of hell filled Jacinta with horror to such a degree that every penance and mortification was as nothing in her eyes if it could only prevent souls from going there. Jacinta often sat thoughtfully on the ground or on a rock and exclaimed, Oh, hell, hell, how sorry I am for the souls that go to hell and the people down there burning alive like wood in the fire. Then shuddering, she knelt down with her hands joyed and recited the prayer our lady had taught us. Oh, my Jesus, pardon us, save us from the fire of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those most in need. Jacinta remained on her knees like this for long periods of time, saying the same prayers over and over again. From time to time, she called out to her brother and myself, Francisco, Francisco, are you praying with me? We must pray very much to save souls from hell. So many go there, so many. Or so many people go to hell, so many. Jacinda was most deeply impressed by some of the things revealed to us in the secret. Such was the case with the vision of hell of the ruin of the many souls who go there, or again the future war with all its horrors, which seemed to be always present in her mind. When I saw her deep in thought and I asked her, Jacinda, what are you thinking about? She frequently pried about the war which is coming and all the people who are gonna die and go to hell. How dreadful, if only they would stop offending God then there wouldn't be any war, and they wouldn't go to hell. One day I went to Jacinda's house to spend a little time with her. I found her sitting on her bed, deep in thought. Jacinda, what are you thinking about? About the war is coming. So many people are going to die, and almost all of them are going to hell. When I went to visit her during illness, sometimes she would suddenly grab my arm and say, I'm going to heaven. But since you are staying here, if our lady lets you, tell these people what hell is like. So you don't commit any more sins and don't go there. St. Jacinta told Canon from Magal that Our Lady had revealed to her that the sins which lead the most people to hell are sins of the flesh. The people must give up luxury and impurity, that they must not remain obstinate in sin, they must do penance. Fashions that will greatly offend our Lord will appear. People who follow God should not follow fashions. The church has no fashions. Our Lord was always the same. Now, the passage on fashions intrigued me, so I spoke with a friend of mine whose first language is Portuguese. And I asked him, I have a question about the word in the lines that we translate as fashions. How can that word be understood in Portuguese? Can it be understood in Portuguese to refer to such things as communion in the hand, girl altar boys, and so forth? He told me, absolutely, Father. Absolutely, Father. The Virgin of Revelations warned priests, do not reject the ancient holy things. Everyone here can easily expand on these thoughts himself. I'll limit myself to an observation. In Fatima, 
The Blessed Sacrament Chapel used to be in a building right behind the apparition site. It was built in such a way that if you knelt down in front of the site where a lady appeared, you, you were lined up with our Lord. If you had extended a line from where you're kneeling through our lady right into that building, uh, it would point directly to our Lord in the most blessed sacrament of the altar. So symbolism, absolutely beautiful to Jesus through Mary. It's just beautiful. Beautiful. Well, they've moved him. He's now way in the heck gone up to the other end of the cova in an underground chapel, just like he was in the wee hours of Good Friday. And it's placed in such a way that during the processions, everyone walks over the top of him. In other words, everyone symbolically tramples on our Lord in the most blessed sacrament of the altar every night. Every night. We can't possibly do enough communions of reparation to make up for all the horrific and blasphemous ways he's treated, especially in his sacrament of love. And even in Fatima. 1947, the Virgin of Revelation said, draw closer with more fervor to the living sacrament among you, the Eucharist, which one, way be, one day will be desecrated and no longer believed to be the real presence of my son. Fashions that will greatly offend our Lord will appear. People who follow God should not follow fashions. The church has no fashions. Our Lord was always the same. One more excerpt. In 1957, Sister Lucia was interviewed by Father Fuentes, the vice postulator for the beatification of Jacinta and Francisco. Sister Lucia, my mission is not to announce to the world the material chastisements, which will surely come if the world does not pray and do penance. No. My mission is to indicate to everyone the imminent danger we're in of losing our souls forever if we remain obstinate in sin. My mission is to indicate to everyone the imminent danger we are of losing our souls forever if we remain obstinate in sin. It's obvious from what we've heard that the reality of hell plays a central role in the message of Fatima. But that raises a question, and the question is, why? Why? Because one of the most remarkable aspects of this past hundred years has been the extraordinary loss of any sense of sin. As Pope Pius XII stated in 1946, quote, the sin of the century is the loss of the sense of sin, close quote. The sin of the century is the loss of the sense of sin. On the feast of Our Lady of Lourdes in 1949, Pope Pius XII stated, quote, we are overwhelmed with sadness and anguish, seeing that the wickedness of perverse men has reached a degree of impiety that is unbelievable and absolutely unknown in other times, close quote. Almost 70 years ago, the Holy Father warned us that mankind has lost the sense of sin and has reached a degree of wickedness never before seen. If that was the 1940s, what about now? What about now? Just look around. As one preacher wisely noted, if God doesn't pass a judgment on America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Once we recognize this general loss of the sense of sin, an absolute tidal wave of wickedness accompanying it, prophetic significance of this terrifying warning comes into focus. In an age absolutely drenched in wickedness, an age in which the population has lost its sense of sin, an age which the priests deny that anyone even goes to hell, an age in which the people actually joke about being damned for eternity, an age in which people buy and even sing music about being damned, about being on the highway to hell, Our Lady came to warn us of the terrifying and eternal consequences of sin, about the absolute reality of hell. The loss of the sense of sin is the sin of the century. Let's make sure that cannot be said of us. We'll close with some thoughts from Sister Lucia. In 1953, a priest asked her Sister Lucia, do you really believe that many people go to hell? I myself hope that God will save the greater number. Sister Lucia, many are those who are lost. Father, certainly the world is a cesspool of vices, but there's always hope of salvation. Sister, no father, many are lost. My mission is not to announce to the world the material chastisements, which will surely come if the world does not pray and do penance. No, my mission is to indicate to everyone the imminent danger we are of losing our souls forever if we remain obstinate in sin. Hell is one truth that is necessary to recall often these times because we forget that our souls are falling into hell in droves. Many are those who are lost. Repent. Stop sinning. Make a good confession. Live in the state of grace. Many are those who are lost. Many are those who are lost.